Let me encourage you to open up to the scriptures this evening to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, uh, let me express my appreciation to be with you tonight. I hate the occasion that requires me to come. Uh, certainly as Chuck mentioned, we're so sorry for our brother Scott's uh, family and the loss that they've sustained. And uh, if you know anything about the McCallan family, they are very, very close. And uh, their family ties run very deeply, as so many of ours do. And uh, it was just uh, terrible to hear about Scott's father. And uh, appreciate the opportunity to be asked. And uh, as Chuck mentioned, uh, uh, we couldn't get together on a, on a date. That happens a lot of times, uh, having scheduled many of these myself. Uh, it, it oftentimes happen, it happens that you call somebody and you say, we'd like to have you come. And you just can't work out that date. And generally, you table that and work on that next year. And uh, uh, but it is a pleasure to be with you. I know Chuck's doing a wonderful job with you. And uh, as he mentioned, uh, the friendship that we enjoy, it's great to, to have them in, in, in our lives and to be part of our lives. Uh, we were talking uh, on the way up, my wife and I, we've got a brand new youth minister moving to town. Actually, a cousin of Daryl's uh, is going to come in to work with us, a guy by the name of Jordan Alker. And uh, we actually are moving them in on Friday and mentioned, uh, Chuck, that... Uh, you, you remember the people that showed up to your house when you move into a place. And I can go back 14 years ago and still remember the people that came by that first day. You remember those things. And uh, uh, I mentioned that just to simply say that uh, Chuck and Melanie and the kids were at the hospital at St. Vincent's when our firstborn uh, was brought into the world and uh, walked out into the waiting area there. My mom and my dad were there. Natalie's uh, mom and dad were there as well. And, and there sat Chuck and Melanie and the kids. And and uh, you always remember those kind of things. So uh, we have a privileged friendship and uh, relationship that we enjoy. And I know you guys are blessed to have him. Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 through 16, as Chuck and I talked on Monday, seem to fit very well with the series that you have going this summer. Where Jesus is speaking to his followers. Uh, and he says, you are the light of the world. Um, a city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all that are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, as we, we look at this particular uh, account, I'm going to title this lesson Camouflage Christianity. When we think about the concept of, of camouflage, uh, we a lot of times think about a military application. It does not matter if it's the jungles of Vietnam or if it's the, the deserts of Afghanistan. Military operations generally come with a, with a patterned camo that is meant to blend in with whatever surroundings the, that our military finds themselves wherever they are throughout the world. And so we're familiar with the idea of camouflage in, in this kind of setting. Uh, for those of you that hunt, uh, whether it's duck hunting, uh, deer hunting, turkey hunting, whatever the case may be, uh, most of us wear camouflage. I'm an uh, avid outdoorsman, and I do a little bit of hunting here and there. And uh, in our area of, of the United States, this is very common to even go out in public and see people wearing camouflage here and there. And when you go and you watch commercials for, say, mossy oak or real tree, you'll, you'll a lot of times have a picture that's part of that advertisement likes behind me where you've got somebody blending in. And so we're, we're familiar with that. But, but when we think about camouflage, it's not a new idea. Uh, God, when he created the world, uh, created some living beings 
to be masters of camouflage. And whether you're, you're talking about a barren caterpillar or a leaf-tailed gecko, or whether you're talking about a common seahorse, uh, God made many living beings to blend into their environment. And so we're very familiar with the idea of camouflage. It's something that, that is a, a, a usual kind of uh, thing that we talk about, a usual uh, trait that, that we'll speak of from time to time. Generally speaking, for people that are very versed in this aspect of life, this particular area, uh, people will tell you that there's two reasons for camouflage. Um, number one, uh, it's to be able to use for preying upon something. For instance, the, the stripes of a tiger allow it to be camouflaged, if you will, to be able to prey on animal, to be able to sneak up very closely and, and get within striking distance. And so one reason, one purpose for camouflage in the natural world is, is so that you can prey on something else. And, and then there's a second reason, and, and, and that's maybe the more common that we think of, and that is to, to not become a prey. Uh, when you think about stripes, again, think about zebras on the plains of Africa, and when you have a herd of zebras running from some type of predator, then it's confusing to the predators that are chasing that herd because all they, they can see is stripes. And so it, it, it confuses the predator. And so generally speaking, there's two reasons for camouflage. Number one, to be able to prey upon something. Number two, to not become prey. It's the second aspect tonight that I, I want to relate to the idea of Christianity. It's the second of those two. You know, we live in a society that is becoming more and more ungodly it seems day by day. You don't have to look far to, to see a lot of examples of that. Uh, there are many of you tonight that are in this audience that have gray in your hair, and if you have gray in your hair, and uh, that's not premature like mine was uh, due to three boys being born to you, um, then you've seen a lot of changes in our society. And you can remember a time when morality, many ideas that are biblical, were ingrained as part of our culture. Not saying our culture was Christian per se or anything necessarily of that nature, but I am saying that a lot of times the, the morals and the values in our culture, they align very closely to many of the things we find in God's Word, but that's not the world we live in today so often. And especially in certain areas of our country, it's worse than others. And, and so what happens is in our minds, we say as Christians, you know, if I stand up and, and I'm counted for Jesus Christ, if everyone knows that I'm a Christian because my values are a little bit different than the majority of the people in our society now, then I'm going to be persecuted and I'm going to become a target. And so what happens is maybe whether we realize it or not, we, we shrink back. We're not as bold and, and, and oftentimes we, we, like one of these animals, we try to just blend in. We lay low and we, we say, I'm just not going to say much, I'm not going to do much, and, and, and we just become part of culture, but we don't want to be noticed at all. And so that's what I'm going to call tonight camouflage Christianity. It's the idea of living in a society, but yet trying to kind of remain hidden, if you will. And I want to ask the question, as a, as a congregation of God's people, as a Christian today, is that something that is biblical? Is that something that, that God desires of His people? And as we think about messages that are important for the church, this is one that I think is extremely important. Why? Why is that important? Well, the more ungodly of a society we might live in, the more this temptation is very real. I would dare say that the temptation that our children face today going to schools oftentimes is going to be much greater than the temptations you and I face going to school in this regard. 
And I don't think that's going to get much better in, in the very near future. And so with that temptation becoming greater today than it's ever been, it's something we probably need to address and we need to think about. And so asking the question, what does Jesus have to say about this to his church? Uh, Matthew chapter 5 verses 14 through 16 speaks to this idea. And so let's begin tonight by just observing very quickly the context that we're dealing with here. When you go back to the first few verses of chapter 5, we see here that Jesus is talking to his followers, his disciples. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain and when he sat down, his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and taught them. You know, if you work for a business, more than likely when you began work for that business, if you don't own it yourself, you probably went through a process called orientation or something like that. It might not have been called that. And during that orientation process, people in your company wanted you to know some background about the history of the company, many of the values associated with the company, and, and many of the purposes, so forth and so on. When I read the Sermon on the Mount, that's the way I see Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Jesus is not talking to people of the world. He's talking to people who have already made somewhat of a commitment to follow him, and he's going to tell them many fundamental principles related to their discipleship. And so Jesus, when we talk about the context here, he is talking to believers here. And that applies to you and that applies to me. As we look at verse number 14 and get into the text now, notice what we see Jesus doing. He makes a, a clear assertion here. And the clear assertion is very, very easy to understand. You are the light of the world, the light of the world. Jesus here is not talking about physical light, uh, as we might maybe think just at surface glance, opening up the scriptures and just reading this. But instead, he's talking about light in the spiritual sense, in the sense that you would read about it over in Ephesians 5, 8 through 9. Uh, Therefore, do not become partners with them, Paul would write, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk then... Paul would write, as children of light. Philippians chapter 2, 14 and following, do all things without grumbling, disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. But notice, among whom you what? Shine as lights in the world. This is a spiritual sense that he's talking about. When he says you're the light of the world, he's talking about the fact that we live in a world of darkness and you are vessels of light to that society, to that group of people. And that's a very clear statement Jesus makes. It, it cannot be underestimated. It cannot even be under, misunderstood because Jesus here is saying, look, you are the hope of the world. You are the light of the world in a dark and evil place. You bring hope. You bring light to, to that place. And so Jesus very much here points out a purpose that they are to fulfill. And, and, and we need to understand that we are called as God's followers to be the light of this world, to reflect not our own light per se, but the light of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And we serve as a beacon to the world. That's what Jesus says here. And, and so when you see the assertion, it's very clear. You are the light of the world. But Jesus here goes further than that, and he mentions... A couple of case examples. A couple of case examples. Verse number 15. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp, put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. There's, there's two illustrations or case examples here that Jesus mentions. The first 
is the idea of a city being set on a hill. I told Natalie as we were driving up, we came up the, probably the rear entrance. When you're going up a hill, I said it's nice to have a church building that's on a hill, but, but the problem is you've got to get there, right? It's, it's, a, it's a really neat thing. We are accustomed in our world today in placing uh, certain structures in certain places, sometimes hills, sometimes valleys, and sometimes in between. And sometimes we might not really think about the, the advantage one way or another of, of it being in a certain place until we get something like the floods that came a few weeks ago. But, but when you go back to ancient Palestine, when you look at the topography of Palestine, I don't know if you've ever seen that before, it's a series of uh, what you might call mountain ranges, hills and, and valleys. In fact, the city of Jerusalem is in one of those hill areas. And so a lot of times when people would construct a city, when they would go about building a city, for a military purpose especially, to be able to see enemies coming from afar, they would put a city on a hill. <laughs> and, and what Jesus says here is people don't build a city that's on a hill and then expect to hide it. It's going to be easy to be seen. It's not going to be hidden. If you want to hide a, a city or hide a town, don't, don't put it on a hill where everybody can see it. The purpose for putting a city in that location was for it to be seen and to be able to have inhabitants in it to be able to see. And so Jesus here is talking about the purpose for, for which people in that time would build a, a city on a hill. But, but the second is the idea of a lamp. You and I are accustomed today to switching on a light switch and all of a sudden light coming into the room in which we're at. But in the ancient world, the, the world that the Bible was written in, they would be dependent upon lamps. Many of them kind of like what is behind me. It might be some type of candle or some type of lamp that would have oil in it, but, but they were dependent upon that. And, and so Jesus gives the hypothetical case example here where there's people in a house and it's become dark and instead of flipping on a, a light switch, what they do is they light this candle or this lamp and then Jesus says, nobody does that. So immediately somebody can take a basket and put it over that. No, that's, that's not the reason the lamp is lit. That's not the reason light is given. It's, it's meant to illuminate the house. And so you don't light this, this candle or this lamp and then immediately extinguish its effects. Jesus said it's, it's lit to provide light to the house. And, and what Jesus here is doing is, is simply saying this. Look, by way of illustration, you need to understand you have a purpose. Your purpose is to be the light of the world. That's what you exist for. And Jesus uses these two illustrations that they are extremely familiar with to, to, to get his point across. Then you'll notice in verse number 16, there is a, a cause and effect that is mentioned here. Verse 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. When you were growing up, did your parents ever tell you to do something and maybe you asked a reason for that and they simply said, I told you so? Nobody ever had that happen to them, right? That was just my parents, right? Uh, that was pretty common in my house. Mom, Dad, why do I need to do X after you've asked me to do X? Because I said so, that's good enough reason, right? Well, sometimes Jesus does that. He will, in Scripture, we find in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, sometimes he will give a, a command to his followers and not give a reason for the command. But in this case, going back to verse number 14, when he says you're the light of the world, he goes further than that. He provides for them an explanation. He tells them, if you will, some reasoning behind that. 
What happens when you are the light of the world? And it's almost, and you can almost imagine, we don't see it here, obviously, written in, but you could imagine somebody like Peter kind of thinking in his mind, well, okay, I'm supposed to be the light of the world. Jesus, could, could you kind of tell me why that's important? Why that's necessary? I could see somebody like Peter saying that, or at least thinking that in his mind. And Jesus saying immediately, let me show you the cause and effect. When you are the light of the world, when you do fulfill your purpose, this is what will happen. What will happen? Verse 16. Well, people will see your good works and they will give glory to the Father who is in heaven. This idea of letting your light shine is kind of defined by being uh, a person of good works. The Bible has a lot to say about that. For instance, in Ephesians 2.10, we're told there that we are created in Christ for good works. That's our purpose. We're created in Christ for good works. In Titus chapter 2 and verse number 14, Christians are told here to be zealous for good works. Go over to Titus chapter 3, verse 8, the very next chapter, a few verses later. Devote yourselves to good works. You see that mentioned. And so time and time again in the New Testament, we're told as Christians to be involved in good works. That's the same thing, by the way, as being the light of the world. Letting our light shine means that we are people of good works. And if someone says, well, I'm not exactly sure what it means to be a person of good works, well, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 helps us. All Scripture is breathed out or inspired by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training or instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for what? Every good work. If you're not sure what it means to be a person of good works, then read this book. Do the things that are found therein, and guess what? You're going to be a person of good works. It's that simple. You're going to be letting your light shine when you do what's said in this book, when you, when you read it and you apply it to your life. And so when, when we see this idea, letting our light shine is being a person of good works, there is great benefit to that. People are going to glorify God when they see us being this kind of person. First Peter chapter 2, verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Almost the same exact saying, isn't it? Matthew chapter 5 and verse 16. And, and it's this idea, when people see us letting our light shine, being involved in good works, when people see that, they will know who we represent they will know whose we are and they will be constrained to praise God. Someone say, I'm not sure what that really looks like in life. We'll go to Luke chapter 18, 42 through 43. Jesus here has met an individual we know as Bartimaeus. Jesus says to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. Now notice the reaction. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. That's an example of what good works look like. Jesus has done a good work in healing this man of his blindness. He's been involved with a very fine, good work, outstanding, something to be commended by all. And and we see that there is not only the willingness of Bartimaeus to follow Jesus from this point on, but we also see other people in that crowd saying, praise be to God. And when we go to Peter's account and we think about the day of visitation, most commentators will say that's in view of judgment. 
Then on the day of judgment, it's not going to be that people will just simply look at God and say, God, I praise you that people on this earth were doing good things that I was able to witness. But it's the idea that carries with it the fact that people say, I see Christians doing these things and I want to be that. I want to become one of those individuals. And I'm going to glorify God the rest of my life on this earth. And so most commentators nearly universally will talk about the fact that it's not just people just saying, praise God, that somebody's doing good. But instead, it's the idea that there's people brought to the Lord because Christians are doing nothing more than letting their light shine, being people of good works. And so when we look at this idea of camouflaged Christianity, when you understand what Jesus here is saying from Matthew chapter 5 and verses 14 through 16, when you, when you place this idea on one side and then on the other side of the ledger you compare it to, to Jesus' teachings here, they don't really go together, do they? The idea of camouflaged Christianity is, is not what Jesus wants of us, either as individuals or as church. Now, I think it's important for me to mention here what I'm not saying tonight, because this is, this, is, this is very difficult. It's a very difficult idea. Someone might say, Kerry, what are you, what are you saying? Are you, are you saying that in a society that I need to do certain things and say certain things in certain settings? For instance, maybe if I had been living in Nazi Germany many years ago, are you telling me that I should have gone into a meeting of the Nazi leaders with a sign that says Jesus saves? That's not what I'm saying. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying today that in uh, some public gathering of non-spiritual people, maybe atheist people that, that have no belief in God whatsoever, I'm not saying that, that we somehow or another try to invade those meetings and that we, we stand up and we make sure these people know we're Christians and we show them our good. I'm not saying in that public sphere. I'm not necessarily talking about that. But I am talking about our relationships. I am talking about the people that know us best. So I want to I share with you tonight an illustration. And, and it's an illustration I don't share a lot of times publicly, illustrations about my life. But this one, I believe, fits very well. Years ago, when uh, Chuck mentioned that he and I became acquainted when we both lived in Walker County, I left uh, high school uh, down in Linden, Alabama years ago, and I went to college at Walker College at that time, 1989, uh, over in Jasper, Alabama. I knew some of the folks that went to school there. We used to live in Walker County prior to that and had moved away to Marengo County, and so I was coming back and being around many people that I had known earlier in my life. But I was meeting a lot of people as a freshman on the campus there at Walker College, and, and there was an individual that I knew by the name of John. And I'm just going to leave his name at John because it's very likely somebody in this crowd may even know John. For about a year, John and I ran around. Uh, on a Friday night there, the only thing that, that kids did generally was ride the strip. You'd ride down to one end of town and ride to the other end of town, and you'd turn around and you'd just do that constantly. I can't tell you how many Friday and Saturday nights John and I'd be in the same vehicle and we'd, we'd ride the strip together, that kind of thing. We'd play ball together occasionally. We weren't best friends, but we were friends. We were friends. Year after that, I moved to Birmingham, started attending UAB, lost touch with, with John. 2001, moved back to, to Walker County to start working with Midway Congregation. Um, Daryl's dad, 
Steve called from the Cordova congregation and said, hey, Carrie, would, would you like to come and speak on a Wednesday night for us in our summer series? Be happy to. Love, love the, the invitation. Be great to meet the folks at Cordova. Had never been to the Cordova congregation before the church building there. Arrived there a little early that, that, that Wednesday night. I was supposed to be there. Walked in the foyer of the church, and the very first person I saw was John. We did like many old friends do. We struck it off from right there, just picked up where we'd left off the very last time, just visited with one another, spent some time with one another. And somewhere along that conversation, I remember looking at him saying, John, I never knew that you were a Christian. I never knew that you were a Christian. John looked at me and he said, you know, I never knew that you were a Christian either. Hmm. For a year, we'd spent significant time with one another. And neither one of us knew that the other was a child of God. There's something wrong with that, isn't there? I'm not saying that necessarily we should have been on a crusade publicly to do one thing or to do another and that we would have figured that out about one another, but it wouldn't have taken a lot, would it? Maybe just simply say, John, you know, I go to church every Sunday. Do you go to church anywhere? Because if you don't, I'd like you to go with me maybe, maybe one Sunday. Or, or, or by the way, John, you know, I, I saw the other night when we were riding down around certain people doing certain things, and according to the way I view things, from what I believe, that's not right. And, and let's talk about that. Is that the way you see things? We never had those kind of conversations. Not one time. And for those of you that may be younger in this, this audience tonight, that may be thinking, well, I can imagine what he was doing that year then. <laughs> it wasn't that, that I was necessarily doing terrible things. I wasn't going out and, and doing this and doing that and the other, but I'll tell you what was on my mind, and that is, instead of letting my light shine, I had chosen to hide it under the bushel. I had chosen deliberately to try to blend in and not be seen. And here's the consequences of that. Not only do I regret that, that's a, that's a year of my life that I can't get back for the Lord. I think sometimes... How many people, unlike John, people that were not right in the eyes of God, how many people did I miss an opportunity to influence? I want to ask you an honest question tonight. When we think about this concept, when we think about this idea, is this true of you and is this true of me? Are we so interested tonight in blending in like this rabbit is in this law? that people even closest to us have no idea who we are, have no idea the Savior that we follow. Again, I'm not talking about going out in the public sphere and proclaiming to the masses, I'm a Christian, but I'm talking about in our relationships, in our workplaces, in our schools, in our families, do people know we belong to Jesus Christ? If they don't, there's something wrong. We need to be the light of the world. And we need to give some honest examination to our lives in this regard. I regret that year of my life. Can't get it back and I can only say, God, forgive me for that year and, and help me to do better in the future. But my hope is if this is the case in your life, you'll put a stop to that now, 
you won't have those times to look back on that I do. That you will say, wherever I was at, whoever I was around, I tried my best to be the light of the world for Jesus Christ. Let's have a prayer. Father God in heaven, we thank you for this day. We praise you. We love you so much. Because of your grace and because of your mercy, we have hope, hope that sustains us and helps us in every aspect of our life. Father Jesus has paid a a terrible price so that we could have salvation, so that we could have forgiveness from our sins. And we pray, Father, that as we give our life to him, as each and every day we commit our well-being to him and we, we follow him, we become his disciples, help us, Father, to have the courage to be the light of the world. Father, there are many people that watch us, that look to us, that we influence, that we come into contact with. Help them to know, Father, who we belong to. Help them, Father, to see our good works as we shine our Christian light and ultimately help them, Father, glorify you one day. Father, we pray that you will bless those who need desperately to see this light. May you bring us into contact with them and may we, Father, influence them in such a way that, that, Father, you would be greatly glorified and even, Father, that they would become a child of yours one day. Father, we pray for that. Father, we we ask your forgiveness of all of our sins and those times that we have been uh, so fallen short of this idea and we pray that you would forgive us for that. Help us in the future as we strive to do better, but help us from this day forth, Father, always seek to be the light of the world for you. Bless us to that end. We pray in Jesus' name.